Hello, we're back for a rather rain-soaked Where Did It All Go Right? Grab your arc, get your ears around this week's episode. You know, rainy weather actually is perfect listening to podcasts, don't you think? Because they stay indoors and get listening. Uh, if this is your first listen, welcome along. This is the podcast where I talk to people in creative jobs about the pivotal moments in their careers. I'm Ali Jones, by the way. Uh, this started when I realised lots of people I'd worked with or went to uni with had just gone on to do some brilliant things and I thought... How did they do it? And it's kind of grown from that. Uh, We've got past episodes up there from comedians, screenwriters, authors, presenters, broadcasters, actors. They're all there waiting for you. So this week's guest is the very brilliant Tim Harford. I always feel when I talk to someone who went to Oxford Uni, I just remember back to the time when I had an interview and my cello string snapped. Uh, yeah, it was a, for a music degree. I didn't just take my cello for, for an interview. just thought that would make things better. Made things much worse, actually. Uh, so, yeah, it was for a music degree, not a geography degree. Um, and I always just think about that when I talk to people who went to Oxford and think, oh, what could have been? Anyway, Tim went to Oxford. He's done loads of stuff. He's a, a podcast presenter. He presents more or less. Uh, he also presents 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. He's written books. Uh, he's an author, writer. Well, you know what? I'm going to leave him to tell you all about that. Well, Tim, it's, it's lovely to meet you and, and thank you so much for talking to me. Um, and I really wanted to talk to you because looking at everything that you've done, you've made economics so accessible, I think, by being creative with it. Is that something that you always set out to do? Well, I didn't originally plan to be an economist at all, uh, although I always had hopes of being a writer. I wanted to write the next great fantasy trilogy, so that that's a slightly different Did you? business altogether. Yeah, I wanted to be the next Tolkien. Um, Is that still something that might happen? Uh, I don't think it's likely to happen, sadly. Uh, I'm not sure I got it in me anymore. But uh, So I always liked the idea of, of being a writer, but being an economist was never something that was, was part of the plan. Um, I mean, being creative about economics, I guess once I got the bug with economics, it always seemed to me to be um, a fascinating topic. There were, there were always things I would notice going around the world, everyday life. I would say, oh, that's, a, that's economics, really. And so I had that enthusiasm that I wanted to share with people in, in, in my first book, The Undercover Economist. That's really, the undercover economist is me, and I'm just wandering around, seeing things and going, look, that's economics. And that's that's where it all got started. But you know, you're not the first person to say, I didn't actually want to do this. I wanted to be something else. So from going to be the new Tolkien to, <laughs> to do what you do now, what was the sort of trigger that got you into, was it must have been at school? Yes. Well, I, I was hedging my bets. So... I think it's ridiculous that we have to decide who we're going to be at the age of 16, um, but somehow we we do mm. in in England, uh, England and Wales. So the I mean the A level system is insane. So I did English, physics, maths, French. You, you can see somebody there not not making up their minds as to what they want to do. And then for university, the the courses that I applied to do were were, were things like PPE, philosophy, politics, economics, which again is the absolute classic subject for. People, for people who don't know what they want to do. And in fact, I, I came to, um, I went to an open day at an Oxford college and uh, was thinking maybe law, maybe PPE. And I said to the student who was showing me around, oh, but the law talk and the PPE talk, they're on at the same time. So which one do I go to? And she said, well, you don't want to do law. So I said, oh, I guess I'll do PPE then. So I went to the PPE talk and it seemed very interesting. So I applied to do philosophy, politics, economics. 
That's ridiculous, I, I, though, because you could have gone the other way and, and been, been I, at the bar. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I could, could have <laughs> spent plenty of time at the bar. Yeah. Don't worry. Um, yeah, no, it's these these ridiculous random yeah. uh, decisions that you make. And then, in fact, I planned to drop economics because the, the PPE, you can drop a subject at the end of the first year. And I always thought I'd drop economics. And in that weird way, um, although actually I found I was quite enjoying it, that never clicked into place as being something that might change my decision. I was, well, I decided I was going to drop it, so I'm going to drop it. And then one of my economics teachers said, maybe you shouldn't. I was like, yeah, actually, maybe I shouldn't. Were they trying to tell you actually you're quite good at this, do you think? Well, I think they just saw that I was enjoying myself, which I was. I was enjoying the subject. So yes, a lot of, I mean, this is fairly early on, Mm. a lot of um, chance happenings and and uh, things could have been very different sure so you so you do your degree and I always find talking to people that well I remember coming out and graduating and you're like okay <laughs> where do I go now so did you go straight into work after you finished uni yeah well I went to Ireland for a year and I taught at the University College Cork which is an absolutely fabulous uh, university um, it's got sort of shades of Oxford about it mm. it looks a bit like Oxford um, Cork is a similar sized city to Oxford but so there were things that were very familiar about that but at the same time Ireland is is not the UK mm. Cork is not Oxford um, so I'm making new friends I'm in a totally new part of the world um, and that was again that was a random meeting I bumped into um, a former professor of mine at a bus stop on Corn Market Street in Oxford and this is back when there were buses on Corn Market Street in Oxford. And and he said, oh, um, University College Cork are looking for a one, temporary lecturer. Just go over for one year. And would you like to do it? And I'll recommend you. And, and I said, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. So, yeah. So, so it strikes me that you're quite into listening to people, hearing what they think and thinking, actually, that's quite a good idea. Would you say that? Yeah, well, yes, you need to be alert to what people are telling you I mean it's actually the the teacher in question um his name's Peter Sinclair wonderful wonderful teacher um was the same person who persuaded me to stay with economics so I, I owe Peter a great debt yeah. um but I do remember though um when I was about late 20s 28 29 trying to figure out what the next move should be mm. and going and asking people I respected what what do you think and there was a my boss was the chief economist of a major company and he had worked at the World Bank and he basically gave me advice that would be consistent with he said oh you should go and work for for somewhere like the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund and he explained why that was a good idea uh, another senior colleague of mine was a business school professor and he said oh you should do a PhD that's how you go to get to be a business school professor I did I was filling in the blanks here yeah a, another um, colleague I really respected said I really needed to get some more commercial experience go out and, and manage some people and you know make some business decisions and it was only and I had various conversations like this and then I came back and I realized every single person had basically told me do what I did and that will help you to achieve what I've achieved which of course is makes perfect sense because sure. all of these people were ve- were very happy in their jobs. They <laughs> like like their jobs, and so they were giving me advice like, if you do this, this is how to get on the path to be like me. But you've got all these different ideas then, and all sorts of swimming around, yeah. and you're thinking, well, actually, do I want to be quite like that person? It's really hard, isn't it, to decide which way to go. Well, so um, I had again colleagues at University College Cork 
who uh, I really respected. They seemed to be having a great time. The academic life sounded great. Here we were sitting around drinking coffee, talking about ideas. Uh, I thought, <laughs> it's well, not all like that. I, yeah, well, I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'd like to be an academic, but I only have an undergraduate degree. So I thought I, I'll try and get a master's degree. So I, I applied to go back to Oxford to do a master's degree in economics, which I very nearly didn't get. I remember um, being told I'd got the place, but not the funding. And of course, back then, why would you do anything if you hadn't got the funding? <laughs> it didn't occur to me I might borrow the money. I mean, now it seems ridiculous, but I was like, well, I don't want to do it if I haven't got the some. It's a, yeah, a few thousand pounds a year, a small, smallish grant. Mm. And uh, this is pre-mobile phones. This is 1996. I was walking across London. There was a there was a bus strike, and I was walking across London to do this summer job. And every 20 minutes, I'd get to a mobile uh, to a payphone. And put 20p in and phone the Department of Economics because there was this woman who'd got my funding. Well, obviously it was her funding, but I was I was first reserve, and they said if she turns it down, you get it, and we think she's going to turn it down because she's. I have got this image of you walking down the street going to run papers. I I literally was that. I was walking from uh, from Surrey Keys in kind of sort of um, southeast London. into central London and it's about an hour's walk and I would just I'd make make these phone calls and they're like well we're still trying to get her she's on a gap year somewhere she's kind of she's in Bali she's on the beach she's in Bali you're she's getting your 20p's yeah, out she's got some job offer from McKinsey or something I don't know I can't remember the details so she she had some job offer and she probably wasn't going to accept this funding and, fi- and, and at the end of this walk and I was just about to go into the office and this is this is the job I'm going to end up doing if I don't get this funding forever I'll never escape from this office if I don't get this funding. <laughs> I make the final phone call and they say, yeah, you've got the funding. And um, so I went in and very politely said, actually, I, I won't be continuing this job at the end of the summer. I'm going back to Oxford to study. And so. have you got any spare 20p's? Because I'm all out. <laughs> <laughs> how, many, how many phone boxes was that? Oh, I don't, yeah, it, I, it, it felt was probably a lot. quite annoying to the person in the admissions office. but Isn't that true, though? When you're really, when you, obviously by then you realise this is something you really wanted to do. You sort of do anything, don't you? And you know, I, I know when I'm on phone calls for whatever, you, you just, if it's engaged, you just keep ringing back, don't yes. you? So, so that Absolutely. was you. I, just, I'm, I must know. I must know. Yeah. <laughs> so you got the funding and, yeah. and, and you did that. And, and where did the, the work at the... The Financial Times. Um, so well that was that was later so i applied for a summer fellowship at the financial times when i was 29 and it was um it was a very respected and loved business journalist named peter martin had died um fairly young i think he'd been in his 50s and he had died and the newspaper set up a fellowship in his memory hmm. it's three months and you get to go into young aspiring journalists get to go in and join the leader writing team which in some ways is a very responsible job because you are the voice of the financial times in other ways is um is a very junior job in the sense that if you write something stupid one of your colleagues can just look over your shoulder and say don't write that whereas if you're a reporter you go out you're at the event you do the interview you write something stupid no one's there to correct you because you were the only person who was there yeah so it's a it's a wonderful way to you meet the editor every day. Uh, you work with all these senior colleagues, and yet, to my surprise, I sort of thought I'll be doing the photocopying, I'll be getting the coffee. But no, they they said write this 
write an editorial. What are we going to do? What are we going to say about competition policy? Straight in there. Yeah, straight in there. And of course, the first one I wrote, they looked and said, right, might, this, this might need a little bit of work. And it was amazing to see the chief leader writer, um, John Wilman, his name, where he was the chief leader writer at the time, very politely, uh, in a very supportive way, just rewrite everything I'd written in about 10 minutes. And I'd been trying to write toiling this, it for, trying for to, days yeah. well I mean for, for an afternoon you have to write them quite quickly that's the thing this is what non-journalists don't yeah. quite get it's like you, you're writing your 500 words you've got about three hours and, and, and a lot of people are how, you know, how is it possible to write so quickly mm-hmm. and yet to be published I was like, well the, the clues in the name newspapers got to be fairly new <laughs> there are people in journalism who write a lot faster than that um, could so, you, could so that you was be- a great uh, exposure to journalism. Sure, and, and could you believe? I imagine it was something that you used to read in the years previously, and you thought, "I'm here now, yes, and I'm on it, and I'm writing it." Absolutely, and although of course it's unsigned because it's the editorials, um, the I remember the the first time it must have been the Wednesday of my first week. I picked up the newspaper and read what I had written in the newspaper the previous day. I hope you recognised it. I yeah, the, couldn't forget it. Um, <laughs> I guess I have forgotten what it was about, but I do remember that that experience of picking this thing up and seeing in print my writing. Absolutely amazing experience. So I was I was very lucky to get that mm. uh, that internship, and then from that point on. Sort of, you, you're in the door and you set sail, I suppose, down down that path. Yes. And, and and at that point, did you think that this is something I do? I kind of find something I really enjoy doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I had been working uh, for a few years for a very interesting um, operation altogether. I had been working for the scenario team at Shell International, uh, the oil company. And I never particularly thought of myself as an oil company person, but I'd sort of stumbled into it in the. You're getting the idea by now. There's a lot of random decisions and just kind of bungling into things. You go, oh, this, well, yeah, I'll give this a try. Um, and the Shell Scenario team, this is a group of people, half of whom aren't, don't work for Shell or only work for Shell for a couple of years. They come in on secondment. Um, and their job is to figure out what is going to happen to Brazil over the next 20 years. What is going to happen to uh, solar energy over the next 50 years? Um, and so on and so on and, and really think deeply about the future because when you think about the energy infrastructure we build you build a pipeline you build an oil rig you build a, a wind farm they last a long time they really last a mm-hmm. long time and the, you spend a lot of money billions of dollars on some of this infrastructure and then it's there for 30 years so you've got to get it right you've got to understand the technology you've got to understand the, the economics the politics and so there's this group of 10 or 15 people all working together trying to figure this out. Absolutely astonishing place to work. In some ways frustrating because it's a big old multinational and you've got various problems to do with that. Um, But an amazing place to work. What was different about going to work for the Financial Times is, which for Shell, in some ways I was doing quite similar work. I'm thinking about ideas, like, you know, what what should we do? What's happening? You'd write something and then it would, you know, go to your boss and go to your boss's boss and then it would Uh, be attached to some email chain and they would just go around and around and around and around and around and around and And sometimes it would see the light of day and sometimes it wouldn't and in any case it would everything would be done by committee and Mm. so while the job was amazing the the idea of an actual output making some kind of impact on the universe you never really got that making it making more of a difference yeah you you, like is 
I mean, in principle, I'm having a big effect because this is a big company. And if I change one person's mind about one important thing, mm. that makes a difference. But in practice, you never, you would never see that. Um, whereas the FT, uh, day one, watch what happens. Day two, write something. Day three, it's in the newspaper. Wednesday morning, it's in the newspaper. How could this happen? I could even get an, an email to my boss's boss in two days. And now I, and, and, and now I'm thinking, they're, they're reading this back at Shell. My old colleagues, they're reading yeah. this right now. Yeah. Um, so you found that incredibly satisfying. That was very satisfying because yeah. you, you, you would know this yourself as a journalist. You, the output is immediate. I think a lot of um, the jobs that give people a lot of satisfaction... Uh, you see, whether you're building a table or giving someone a haircut or you're writing an article for the newspaper, you see it right there. Yeah. And there's no question at the end of the day, what did I do today? I know what I did today. I, there it is. Production. Exactly. Yeah. And it's very satisfying to see an immediate response. So that was one thing that really struck me about the FT that I enjoyed. Um, I'd already been working with interesting people. I'd already been being creative, already in a world of ideas that I loved already making connections, all of that stuff that I would later do as a journalist. The only problem was, it was very hard to see that it was making any difference to it, to anything. It would go to meetings and people would you'd say stuff and people would listen. And maybe you'd change how they thought, maybe you wouldn't change how they thought, you would never know. It kind of disappeared. Yeah, yeah. and, and it, your stuff doesn't disappear as a journalist. Every now and then you write something you wish would disappear, <laughs> but it doesn't disappear. And, and particularly you, with the yeah. internet. Yeah. It stays. It's, it stays there, and mm. you're, you know, you you can point to it, you can take pride in it, or you can be embarrassed about it, but it's there. You did something, and it's there. And talking about taking pride in stuff, you must be so proud of of the undercover economist. I wondered how that whole idea came about because you're talking about being the intern, and you know that was you were sort of, I guess, at the bottom of the ladder. Mm-hmm. And, and so, how did you you got the idea, and did you have to pitch it? So, so the the book, the Undercover Economist, that came first. Uh, that came. I was working still at Shell. Uh, a colleague of mine who'd come in just part time to help us think about technology it was a science writer called David Badanis, who had written a wonderful book called E Equals M C Squared, which was um, partly a biography of of Einstein, but partly just explaining where all these different concepts came from. Where did E, E, energy, where did that come from? Equals. Who came up with equals? <laughs> and, just, and, and drawing it all together and it, fi- and it finishes with relativity and then the atomic bomb. Great book. Really um, helping you understand not only the science, but the people behind it. And I, I would have coffee with David and we'd talk about the future of technology. And, I'd, and I said to him, I'd really like to do that for economics. I would like to write that kind of book about economics. And he sort of nodded, and there's this benign expression on his face, and uh, he said, yeah, okay, you, you could just do that. Just you do don't, it. You don't need anyone's permission. <laughs> and so that's what I started to do. I wanted to write a book like E equals MC squared, but for economics, and that would show show people the economics in, in the everyday world around them. Mm-hmm. So that conversation took place in early 2001 I spent most of 2001 not writing the book most of 2002 writing the book I did the internship at the Financial Times in 2003 Um, I didn't get a publisher for the book until the beginning of 2005 it didn't come out until late 2005 didn't come out in the UK till spring 2006 
didn't become a bestseller until paperback in the UK in 2007. That was the point where we actually started to go, you know what, actually quite a lot of people are buying this book. Um, that's a long time after... I basically finished writing the book in 2002. Doesn't that show good things come to those who wait, though? Well, they don't always come to those who wait. <laughs> but um, it is one of, the, one of the general facts about books is that um, even though I do, generally do it a bit quicker these days, mm. but it's a long time between thinking of the book to finishing the book. And then it's an awfully long time between finishing the book and having any idea whether the book has been read by anybody, has been a, is a good book, is a bad book, is a successful book, is a flop. And that's completely opposite to what you were just talking about when you're writing a column quickly. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you're getting emails, you're getting reaction. This was like, so were there times, because when you don't get any feedback, were there times during that process when you just thought, oh, do you know what, I might just jack this in? Uh, yes, there, there was one time in particular where I, I just kept sending it to agents and getting, I always thought with agents it would be, um, it would be no, 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 no. And then one day, yes. That hopefully, yeah, yes, yeah. that would be how it would be. But actually, it, was, it wasn't. It was from the start. It was, hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> and it would take months. They would just sit on it for months going, and, and actually I realised, well, it, if it's a book that, that is maybe interesting, it's not in their interest to say an outright no. Hmm. Um but then again, there's no hurry for a first-time author. There's no hurry to say yes either. So it took a long time. And one of these agents got back to me with, um, oh, make this correction, make that correction, do all these changes, lots and lots of changes he wanted. Um, and I just thought, oh, I'm so bored of this. I want to write a book about something else. And a, and a friend of mine sat me down and said, you're about two weeks away from finishing this book. Um, you're telling me you don't want to bother? You want to start another book? It was a good piece of advice I got from him. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there are times when you you want to you want to stop. And the Tolkien trilogy maybe was it still at the back of your mind, uh, just thinking maybe I'll do that instead. That, yes, that wasn't the other book, but yes, it was. Uh, I never did write the other book, and I probably never will. But um, yeah. But yeah. eventually, when you get a few maybes and a really long maybe, you just keep plugging away at loads of different people. Did you find it was better just to keep going at different people? Or did you just wait for the maybes? Uh, quite patient. So, well, the first agent I'd, I sent off two sample chapters, and so I hadn't actually written the book. And she sat there for months saying, this is interesting. And of course, and now I realise, of course, you're a first-time author who has not written the book. Mm. It doesn't matter how good the first two chapters are. It doesn't matter how good the idea is. You're going to want to wait till the book's there. Yeah. Um, so actually, I wrote most of the book while she was just sitting there going this is interesting but maybe send me a bit more well I guess that's, yeah. that's which that is fine absolutely fine so yeah you keep plugging away you you you, you try um, you know you try different publishers you try different agents in the end I think the lead that really helped was um, a colleague of mine by this by this time I was working for the World Bank so this is after my Financial Times internship and still trying to become a published author I'm still trying to become a journalist I ended up working for the World Bank for two years uh, which is a good place to be an economist. And um, a friend of mine at the World Bank was had worked in publishing and and then became a publisher at the World Bank itself because the World Bank publishes a lot of books. And I told him what I was doing. He said, oh, well, I know, I know a good person you should send it to. So I sent it to this good person and this good person got back and said, yeah, we want to publish this book. So, that- so then, I, then I wrote back to one of these agents and said, do you want to pick up the phone and talk to this publisher or not? Because I... I've been waiting for a very long time and I would just like my book published, please. So um, 
if you want to be my agent, be my agent, but I'm going to this this book is going to get published. Yeah. And so that, at which point the the agent was convinced that it might be a good idea to pick up the phone and, and actually be my agent. But doesn't that prove that when you're sort of the one who's a bit more in control, you you know, you had a friend who had a bit of a, a friend who, who could, in, you could engage with them first and you could go back to this initial person and you've got a bit more weight behind yeah, you, haven't it, you? It, yeah, it always... It all, I mean, by that time, of course, I was able to say I had written for the Financial Times, even though I wasn't working for the FT at the time. So there was... Um, I think the book was getting better. I was editing the book. Uh, my track record was getting more interesting. I also had you know, started to get more connections. Um, I think there's no one thing. Mm. People say, oh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I don't think that's quite true, but it's not It's not false either. Mm. Um, there's so many industries, and publishing is one of them, that are completely impenetrable. It's probably true for most industries, actually. You don't just don't get how they work from the outside. You don't understand what people want. Mm. You don't understand what they're looking for, whether it's a book proposal or whether it's a job application. Um, and so you need that experience one way or another. You need to talk to people in the industry or you need that bit of exposure. You need someone to take a chance on you. Um, and then it's much easier to see, oh, okay, I now understand mm. what it is that people want to see. Did you have any idea, though, that it would be so phenomenally successful and so many copies were sold when you were writing it? Did you have an idea when you were writing it, you think, I think I'm onto something here? Oh. No, no, not at all. I had no idea. Of course I had no idea. And I, But what I remember very clearly is um, finishing the the last page, the last sentence. And of course there were, loads, there were loads of edits to come, but as far as I was concerned, I had written the book, I had finished the book, 80,000 words, done. And... Um, came downstairs and, and my uh, wife was there but we weren't married at the time um, and, I, and I said I've, I've done it I've finished it and I don't know if anybody will publish it but I'm but I'm not sorry I did it it just felt I, I, that I had created something and it didn't really matter of course I wanted it to be published mm. of course I wanted it to be read but I felt I didn't feel that the whole thing would be wasted if no one published it. I, f- I was quite happy with my 80,000 words done. There was that sense of satisfaction. Yeah, it's a great feeling, isn't it? So, yeah. So I- the idea that a uh, million, million and a half people went up buying the thing, and some of them presumably have read it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, of course I had no idea. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about the, you know, the background to that and, and the book, but we must talk about the podcasts that you do as well. And I'm interested... We were talking before we pressed record about more or less really it's, it's a really early podcast in a way everyone is doing podcasts now i suppose um how did you get how was the, the move from the writing and and being at the at the ft as well how was that move into into the world of podcasting um so i got an email from a lady at the bbc nicola merrick who was running uh bbc radio current affairs in london and she had seen me present a BBC Two series. I presented a short series on BBC Two called Trust Me, I'm an Economist. This was just after the book came out. I realised in retrospect it, that was quite weird and there was, you, don't, you know, don't normally just get people come up to you and say, do you want to make a TV series? And you go, oh yeah, okay, fine, give it a go. Yeah, you That's, know, we, we talked luck earlier, didn't yeah. we? <laughs> I mean, that was just, 
Um, having been involved in various pitches for TV series since then, none of which have really gone anywhere, I realised that was um, just right place, right time. And I did this short series, uh, and it was fun to make, um, but it didn't catch on. But there it was, and at the time, Nicola Merrick was looking for a new presenter for More or Less. More or Less had been created by Andrew Dilnot and Michael Blastland. Um, Andrew used to run the Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, now runs Nuffield College, Oxford, and, and has, um, has run the UK Statistics Authority. I mean, very, um, very, very well-respected journalist. Uh, Michael Blastland, old hand at the BBC, very creative producer. The two of them together had created this thing called More or Less. And they ran it for about four years, and then they stopped. And I think at the time, the BBC was of the view that... Um, they were so uniquely gifted uh, that it was just completely impossible to make more or less work without them. And Nicola, and they are uniquely gifted. However, I think that undersells how strong the concept was. Mm. I think now if you explain the idea of more or less to people and, and you say, oh, do you, do you need that, um, that very, very special kind of person, that very unique personality, otherwise it just won't work. You're like, no, it's crazy. It's a very simple idea. It's a very strong show. It's about numbers. A lot of, you know, a lot of correcting people when they make numerical mistakes, a lot of exploring the world with numbers. It's not that hard. Any idiot can actually present it. It takes a genius to create it, Michael and Andrew. Any idiot can present <laughs> it. And that, I think, was Nicola's position. So she was just looking for an idiot. And she found me. <laughs> Um, she said, well, this guy, I've seen his TV show, I've read his book. Looks like an idiot to me. Let's let's give him a try. So she got me in and I presented a, an episode of Analysis, which is a Radio 4 programme where they have lots of guest presenters. So it's a little bit of a tryout. And I think um, the actually the, that particular programme is one of the best pieces of radio I think I've ever made um, with a very talented producer called Richard Varden, who has been the editor of More or Less for a long time. And, um, yeah, that was it. They said, okay, we'll start, start making more or less. So that was 2007. So that's it's now been 12 years. Wow. That's and, a long time to be connected to something, isn't it? Yeah, it's a long time. Um, and um, But, you know, it's fun. I, I, mean, I work with very, very good people at the BBC. Um, Charlotte MacDonald, my long-term producer, Richard Varden, the editor, uh, Ruth Alexander, who's produced many series and, and has presented a lot of it herself. Um, and lots of other people and there's a there's a regular turnover of the more junior reporters so you get to work with lots of different people who've got their different strengths and their different personalities um and um and the topics are always changing the issues are always changing so yeah i'm not bored of it just yet and when you got behind the microphone for the first time because for some people that's you know having done a lot of writing you might think you might be all right but actually you've got to be able to communicate in, in a different way and a lot of people oh I don't like the sound of my own voice or that kind of thing but you obviously felt straight at home and well I don't know I think if you listen to some of the, some of the early programs they're not very good um <laughs> so no I uh, it takes time mm. and and I'm still learning um but you do learn the thing that I still find very difficult is um interviewing uh, I always I, my questions are too long too many ums and ahs <laughs> The script, I'm quite happy writing script and yeah. reading script, um, but I probably, I should just get better at interviewing. And if I got better at interviewing, we could include more interviews and have less script and the programme would probably sound better. But It's always you go. tweaking all the time, isn't it? But also now it's more important than ever a programme like that, isn't it? Because 
fake news and, and it's all about facts, isn't it? And do you feel a sense of that, that it's growing and particularly at this time? Well, I don't know. I So it does feel important. Uh, I, I did feel... After the referendum, because we we had we had um, very frequent shows during the referendum, I felt during the referendum that um, no one was very interested in the facts, and actually the conversations we would have about certain numerical claims were possibly even counterproductive. Um, people would get fixated on whether a particular number was true or not, and and that would derail the serious conversation that we should be having about how this might work, what we might do, what the vision of a, of a post-EU UK would be, uh, how we wanted to leave, um, what the advantages might be of leaving, what the advantages might be of staying. We didn't get that. We got a lot of kind of arguing over numbers on buses. Um, and I always feel that more or less is at its best when we're putting things in context. We're not just saying, oh, they got that one wrong, but to say, all right, well, they got that, that one wrong. Um, what is the number? How would you even count this? Why does this number matter? Or does this number matter? Um, so it's there's a continuing effort to add context. The other thing I think is very important is people often describe more or less as um, or that programme where you, know, you show up all those liars and you shoot down all the fake statistics. <laughs> I think it's very harmful if that's all people think of when they think of statistics. Um, the most famous book about statistics ever published is probably How to Lie with Statistics by Darrell Huff, which is all about viewing statistics as a kind of trick and showing you how where the rabbit's being hidden before the magician pulls it out of the hat. Um, Darrell Huff ended up being a shill for the tobacco industry, uh, tr- trying to cast doubt on the statistics that the epidemiologists were using to say, you know, this, this is giving people heart disease, this is giving people cancer. Um, so there is a risk in if if all we do is fact check it um, and 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 show that people have not told the truth, that people have got it wrong, that people have made a mistake, people have lied. That's all we do. We just contribute to a narrative of you can't believe anything, you can't trust the experts, um, there is no truth out there, the numbers are always deceiving. Um, so we've got to be very careful mm-hmm. as to how we present these numbers and yeah if someone makes a mistake you've got to call it if someone is lying you've got to call it but at the same time statistics are a great way to understand a very complex world I mean, 60 million people in the country you can't get your hands around how that works without some kind of statistical perspective mm-hmm. so we need to do that as well but with statistics I love the fact that you, you and cause my husband's a statistician as well so um, he's always going on about well, we're talking about facts, but detail. And, and I love when, when I watch one of your TED Talks and I love how you have great stories and examples. And, and examples as well, because let's be honest, it can be, it could be quite, quite a, a subject that you could doze off on if, you ha- if you're not really got some brilliant ideas. And I was watching a TED Talk, the one about, um, oh, it was, it was the frustration, how, how it can make us more mm-hmm. creative but- and coping with mess. And there was an example of a pianist who was going in for a concert hall and the piano didn't work, but yeah. he actually, he, he made it because he, he, he coped with the mess and he made it something better. Yeah. And 
I wondered if, it, and you talked about Brian Eno as well, and yeah. I, I just wondered, you're, you must be the sort of person who just loves getting into the detail, yeah. but also the examples too. Yeah, I love stories. Mm. I love telling stories. I think stories are um, a, uh, they're kind of magic. You can bring people along, you can explain really complicated ideas in, in a story um, because people want to know how the story ends. So they'll, their curiosity is activated. So yes, I like that. And I am also interested in, in, in some of the details. Certain kinds of details really engage me. So that's one of the things that um, I do in 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, which is my, uh, another book and, and a BBC podcast, mm. is to take a, a really, really big issue, which is how does the modern economy work and how did we get here? Right? All 8 billion of us over the last, you know, 100,000 years. Simple. Yeah. And to say, right, well, I, I, I'll, here's, here's my two tricks. Number one, details. I will tell you how um, weird little things about how stuff works, like the who invented the modern beehive and what's important about the modern beehive and, and what, how does that affect the way pollination works all across North America, that sort of thing. But also, not just the details, but the stories. So the characters, the motivations, the twists in the tale, the, une- the unexpected consequences. Um, and if you've got these weird details and these lovely stories, um, you can get your uh, sort of a, a toehold on very, very big mm. and potentially very abstract questions. Well, I remember when I used to be revising, and if I could think of a, remember a great story about something, it was so much easier. Because um, I, I don't, I know nothing about the economy or anything like that but um, I read that you'd said that an economist Hyman Minsky is mm-hmm. that right yes um, said that the more stable everything gets the more risks everyone mm-hmm. takes and I thought I was I just read that and that resonated with me because yeah. I thought sometimes in the morning if I've got a really unstable day you know lots of stuff going on then I'll be like right I'm going to have cornflakes whereas yeah. you know when you're having a day and uh, it's not difficult. You're th- I might go crazy. I might have a pan of chocolate or yeah. something like that. But it's stories like that is that you give us in in these podcasts and these these TED talks that really make it more accessible. And that that's something that is something that you obviously just that's the what you love doing. Yeah, I'm always I'm always on the lookout for the story. Yeah. Well, the, the story of Minsky himself. I, I'm not an expert on Minsky's life, but he uh, he died before the financial crisis. I think he died in the 1990s. And he was completely ignored. No one was interested in Minsky. Um, he was an economist who just had some ideas that just didn't really fit very easily into the way economists tend to think. And then suddenly, during the financial crisis, everyone realised he nailed it. He completely understood what was going on um, because he saw that um, stability could be self-defeating. Hmm. Um, I remember having this argument at Shell about five years before the financial crisis because uh, everyone was saying, oh, the world's a very volatile place. And I said, just look at the data. The world's not volatile at all. We look at look at economic output, look at, look at inflation, look at um, uh, unemployment. Any measure you like of how the economy is doing, maybe doing well, maybe doing badly, but it's super stable. Everything's like, everything is just nothing ever changes. The recessions are really small, inflation's really low, nothing ever changes. And what Minsky understood, which the rest of us didn't, is that is the ingredient for a massive financial crisis. Because when everything changes, suddenly people stop buying the insurance policies and people start going, well, I can bet big because, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? And 
that's where everything blows up. Yeah. But it's a lesson, I think, in intellectual history as well. Suddenly this guy, everyone's quoting this guy. Every, so everyone, everyone claims to have been following what he said way back. But sure. actually he was, he was completely unknown before the crisis and suddenly he was everywhere. So when you unearth all these stories and all these ideas, it must inspire you, because we're talking here about taking risks. Would you say that you're somebody that when you're making decisions about what you've been done done in your career, that you're you're a risk taker? Oh, no, I don't think I could... Do you get the facts? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't think I've taken that many risks. I mean, so there was, I guess there was friends of mine who um, got jobs, uh, you know, regular corporate jobs in London and and worked with them and they've got their pension and they've got their employment contract and um, uh, so I suppose what I've done has been a bit more risky because I've changed jobs fairly frequently and a lot of what I do is effectively freelance being a writer we do have a job I work for the Financial Times very grateful for that job (laughs) but that's not um, that's not the largest chunk of how I spend my time Um, so there's some risk taking there but to be honest it doesn't feel very risky the work that I've done on on frustration and on mess and on the way that obstacles can trigger a creative response that I have found helpful sometimes you know when something is not working out the way you want Mm. um, I I tend to immediately start looking around for okay but what's the opportunity here you know that I've been blocked here there must be some other there must be some other way to use this material or the fact that this story didn't come out the way I wanted, there's an opportunity in that. Mm. Or, so um, it, I'm trying to be more open-minded. But of course, like anybody, you know, you like things the way you like them. Oh, you do, yeah. No, then we were talking earlier about, um, your daughter was saying about getting marked and mistakes and things yes. like that. And you were thinking about writing about that. Yeah, she was... Um, uh, saying that, um, you know, people were just too harsh. She was complaining about her exams. And I said, you know, you realise I, I write every day and, and people, if I get something wrong, everyone will write in and say I got something wrong. So I have to get everything right. And she said, Dad, people are too harsh. <laughs> but no, because we're journalists and we have to, we can't, obviously we can't get everything right all the time. Um, but neither can you, neither can you write a story where you go, well, you know, 70%, that's pass. You're like, you really are aiming for 100% every time. You really are trying to get it right. Yeah. So, But it's isn't it great that you just the job that you do. You are constantly learning. You're constantly finding out about new stuff, and it 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 just inspires you all the time. And I'm wondering what you're thinking about doing doing next. You're still podcasting. You're still Mm -hmm. writing. You're still learning. You're still studying. But are there other things that you'd like to achieve? Uh, Well, I have a a new podcast in the works, an independent podcast um, called Cautionary Tales. That is the working title, which will be about uh, I'll be telling stories, true stories uh, of things that did not work out the way we expected. And then what's the lesson? That's, that's another excuse for me to try to take ideas from social science, from sociology, anthropology, psychology, economics, uh, sometimes quite complex lessons, and to get them into people's minds in a way that they will remember by wrapping them together with a story. So that's, that's um, one big project that I'm working on. I'm still halfway through 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, season two. Big argument about what to call that. <laughs> Should it be 100 Things That Made the Modern Economy? We settled for 50, 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, season two. Okay. Um, um, more series, more or less. And I'm working on a book called How to Make the World Add Up. And that is 
all about this more positive attitude to statistics, trying to understand how to use statistics to understand the world rather than just to constantly smack down and accuse people of peddling fake news. Um, so a slightly more positive attitude to numbers, but also thinking about our reaction to numbers. So not just how to do numbers right, but how to think about how we think about numbers. Uh, the wishful thinking, uh, the, 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 the tribalism. Yeah. Just monitoring our own biases and trying to fix them. Which, which of course is impossible, but you can always try, and I think it helps to try. It's really exciting now, all the different stuff that's coming up in the pipeline, and, and, and looking back on the things that you've achieved and the awards. Well, so one of the things about, uh, about getting an OBE and going to the palace is, uh, one of the nice things is, you realise, um, as my, my um, late mother-in-law would have said, a lot of people get OBEs. <laughs> so you're there, and you're still like, there's a queue for the loo, and there's a queue for the photographer, and there's like loads and loads of people milling around. And of course, everyone's in a lovely mood, and the small talk's really easy because it's like, well, what did you get your OBE for? So everyone's there for exactly the same reason, but at the same time, everyone's got their own distinct reason to be there. Um, but one of the things you learn, uh, which I didn't realise, is you're there, there's 100 people getting their MBEs, OBEs, CBEs, and about three people getting nitroids. Like, oh, okay. It's really hard to be a, a sir or a dame. Um, so <laughs> there's still time. Uh, yeah, I. Well, I can't say that um, that was ever ever part of my plan. No, but um, it was a lovely surprise, I'm sure. It was a very nice surprise. It feels um, slightly absurd to be rewarded for doing something that I love doing and get paid perfectly well for doing. And it's not as if I'm looking after. Starving orphans or anything. I'm not doing anything noble. I'm just doing my job, uh, and it's a fun job. Um, so it feels a bit silly, um, but of course I'm absolutely delighted. I'm very pleased. But also up there as well, being an honorary fellow at the Royal Statistical Society as well. That that must be really special because that's people that you work with and people that you've looked up to for years. I'm sure. Now, yes, that that was really nice. And and when they told me they were going to make me an honorary fellow, I I thought to myself, oh that's that's nice, but. Um, I mean, some of these, some of these sorts of things, you realise there are a lot of honorary fellows around. I had zillions of them, um, and I looked at the list, and it's a, it's a really short list, and there are some amazing people on it, and so I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's proper. I, I feel that I don't deserve that, but I'm, I'm absolutely delighted because yeah. the Royal Statistical Society, they do great work. They were always there, right, right from the beginning, trying to, trying, trying to just get the facts straight before we do any of the complicated analysis or anything. Can we just agree on how we're going to count something or how we're going to measure something um, and the most famous um, member of the Royal Statistical Society fellow of the Royal Statistical Society is uh, Florence Nightingale who uh, is famous for her nursing but in Nerdland which is where I live proud citizen of Nerdland <laughs> Florence Nightingale is, is revered as a pioneer of um, public health campaigning for public health on the basis of gathering really solid statistical evidence and she was camp really pushing against the British establishment to clean up the hospitals, to clean up military barracks based on statistics and that's what the statistical, the Royal Statistical Society was doing right from the start, trying to make the world a better place by first getting the facts right. So I never knew that, stories again you see isn't it? Fantastic. Yeah. So. I mean, looking back, we've talked about, I think for me, one of the big pivotal moments for you, for you was those telephone boxes, because that's a great story that you keep telling about, but things that stand out. But it, you, you did say that talking to a lot of people, that, that's really interesting, but they were trying to tell you 
about their career and how it worked for them. But it is taking on board advice from people and but also having a sense of really what you love and what you want to do. What would be for you the, the, the pivotal moments? Um, the, I, I suppose that conversation with David Badanis where he told me I could write a book hmm. and maybe I just should. <laughs> just get on with it. Um, there, there have been a lot. I mean, there, there have been many, many moments where um, I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I got a very good piece of advice. Um, but if if I was to try to pin it all down to one moment, which is absurd, yeah. <laughs> sorry to you don't under, need one. Sorry to, sorry to undermine the whole premise of the podcast, but you can have pivotal moments, yeah. plural. Well, there are, there are many, um, but that moment where David convinced me that I could write a book and maybe I should, uh, I always thank him for it, and he says, "Well, thank you because I've given that pep talk to a lot of people, and no one ever writes the book." <laughs> So <laughs> this one came off absolutely. <laughs> and if anyone's listening and they think I quite fancy being an economist and getting into it, but or they might be at that stage where they're like, well, I want to do PPE because I'm not really sure where I want to go. Mm-hmm. It's it's having faith in, in in loving what you do, I suppose. But what what other advice would you give? Uh, what other advice? So, well, I didn't know what I loved really. Mm. So you needed other people to tell you. I needed other people to tell me. I needed to constantly be paying attention. So, be willing to change direction. Be willing to change jobs. Change jobs many times. I've changed direction many times. Um, and and there's nothing wrong with with that. There's nothing wrong with doing more than one thing at once mm. either. I wrote my first book while I was working at Shell. Um, I did the editing and the publishing while I was working at the World Bank. That's great advice, I, actually, because I think yeah. I think a lot of people think you've got to do that, then you've got to move to that. Yeah. But if you can try and do things at the same time, then you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, are you? Uh, absolutely not. And actually, my most recent TED talk is about this. I, I call it slow motion multitasking, multiple projects. It's absolutely standard. It, you you look closely at anybody who's ever done anything interesting, and it's highly likely that they've got all of these different irons in the fire. Um, they're cross-fertilizing, they get blocked on one project, they get frustrated, that just frees them up to do do something else, they come back to the first project, mm-hmm. they've solved their problem, um, or they've learned something from one field and applied it in another field. It's very, very common. And, um, and multitasking has a bad name, for good reason. The idea of the triple screening, oh, I'm going to be on Twitter and on Facebook while I'm watching Netflix and all that, like, like, that's not creativity. Mm-hmm. But having more than one project on the go, um, that's solid advice. That is solid advice. That's brilliant. And and it's fascinating talking to you with all your amazing stories and uh, and how you have been so creative in your career. And I know you've got to get into a into a Bodleian are you going today uh, Bodleian Library today yeah, yes thinking more writing articles but thank you so much for spending the time and talking to me about how things have gone so far it's my pleasure thanks so much thank you to Tim for sparing the time to talk to me you know he even provided a yoga mat to make the recording less echoey how good is that don't forget you can rate us on iTunes and Podbean and subscribe as well if you don't mind. That would be brilliant. We're on Spotify as well and there will be another episode next week. Thank you to Megan for producing the podcast. Uh, she's getting a puppy and she's been, oh, she's making me so jealous by sending me lots of uh, pictures of it on WhatsApp. Uh, thank you to her and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>